This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Alice Rivlin and Pete Domenici. Alice Rivlin is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. Pete Domenici is the longtime former U.S. senator from New Mexico. I spoke with them on October 9, 2012, at a public event at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Well, welcome, everyone. Welcome to Brookings. Uh, it's a terrific and exciting day for us here. And welcome also on behalf of our partner in today's event, uh, the American public media program On Being with Krista Tippett. Uh, this event is being recorded um, for uh, later bro- broadcast in the coming weeks. And today's event is part of On Being's Civil Conversations Project. Brookings is delighted to join other terrific outfits in working with on being on this, uh, on this series, uh, including the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs and uh, an outfit that we have begun partnering with ourselves, the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis, which shares a common benefactor with us in Robert Brookings. And today we're grateful for the special support from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, uh, who is supporting today's event. Today's topic has a special connection to the very origins of the Brookings Institution. Ninety-six years ago, Robert Brookings came to Washington from St. Louis. I say that aware that the St. Louis Cardinals will be coming tomorrow uh, to Washington from St. Louis. Uh, A successful Republican businessman, uh, Robert Brookings came at the request of a Democratic president, Woodrow Wilson. Brookings' mission was to bring clarity Indeed, discipline and sanity to the way the U.S. government assembled its budget and did its accounting. In taking on this enterprise, Brookings hired high-quality experts. He gave them the freedom to work independently of the government, but he wanted them to be close enough to the government to have impact. And those three core values uh, of Robert Brookings have become our motto, as you'll see from our website, quality, independence, and impact. But Brookings knew that the federal budgets were more than just numbers uh, and the realm of technical experts, that they reflect our nation's core values. Uh, And as we're saying that, I see uh, uh, Brookings trustee. We have a few trustees with us here today who have helped us uh, embody those those values. Um, Our nation's core values are embodied in our budgets, which tell us what we owe one another, what investments we are willing to make for future generations, and who and how we will pay for those investments. From those high principles, we often then descend to the hard and messy business of passing budgets, which is never clear or easy. Um, And as a result, our current budget mess didn't happen overnight. Indeed, it is still unfolding over the next several decades, like a slow-moving train wreck. It also won't be solved in one year. And the prospect of fixing it seems farther and farther away, especially in a politically polarized Washington. Just over a year ago, polarization nearly led the government to default on its debt. Individuals were unwilling to put partisanship aside. At Brookings, we are hopeful, and in fact, we believe that this is not a permanent condition. And we are fortunate that at least two people in America see our broken budget politics as too big to fail. We're even more fortunate that they're here with us today. First, a warm welcome to Senator Pete Domenici, 
Uh, the highlight of his 36-year career as U.S. Senator from New Mexico are available as a handout. Um, if you didn't get it, we can get some for you. Uh, but I'll just focus on two facts that tell the, world, tell the world about his service. First, as chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, he produced two consecutive balanced budgets, the only balanced budgets in the last 50 years. Second, Senator Domenici introduced the reconciliation process into Senate procedure. If you don't recall this, it caused quite a stir a few years ago. It enables spending reform to pass without the danger of a filibuster. At Brickings, we love those little technical fixes. Next to Pete is a master of technical fixes, big and small. Alice Rivlin is a senior fellow at Brookings in our economic studies program, a title she first earned over 40 years ago. Now, at Brookings, there are senior fellows, and then there are senior fellows. I tell my kids when I grow up, I want to be like Alice Rivlin. <laughs> Two defining facts about Alice. First, as a Brookings scholar, she helped design a major technical fix of her own, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. For her sins, she was made its first director in 1975. The second fact is that she has also been a budget warrior. As the director of the White House Office of Management and Budget under President Clinton, she was a key player in one of the most contentious budget battles ever, which included the government shutdown of late 1995 and 1996. But that shutdown led to the balanced budget agreements that Senator Domenici helped to craft. So as we start today's conversation, it is important to remember that Alice and Pete once squared off against each other. Fortunately for all of us, they are now working together. At the Bipartisan Policy Center, Alice and Pete have crafted their own task force and proposal to reduce the debt. The Dominici Rivlin Task Force includes 19 former White House and Cabinet officials, former Senate and House members, former governors and mayors, business, labor, and other leaders. Their plan reduces and stabilizes the debt. It reforms personal and corporate taxes. It safeguards Social Security, and it controls health care costs. Normally at Brookings, we would debate and discuss the details of such a plan, or lots of cool technical fixes could, that could help bend the curve of our budget down. But instead, today we have a real treat. Our topic today is not what is in the plan. Rather, it is what went into the plan in order to make it happen. We're not talking about dollars and cents or actuarial tables. What we are talking about are human values. And maybe even more importantly, what it took for people with very different political backgrounds and perspectives to work together through a major challenge. To guide us in that conversation, we are really very fortunate to have Krista Tippett. Krista is a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster and New York Times best-selling author. She's the creator and host of On Being, which airs on more than 250 public radio stations across the country. Krista has conducted hundreds of interviews over the years. Some of my own favorites include with the Dalai Lama, the Reverend Rick Warren, Lord Jonathan Sachs, the Chief Rabbi of London, the physicist Sir John Polkinghorne, the religious historian and former professor of mine, Yaroslav Pelikan, and the singer-songwriter Roseanne Cash. Two facts about Krista. First, Krista started out her career as a diplomatic correspondent in Europe during the Cold War, reporting for the New York Times, the BBC, and Newsweek. Second, Krista grew up in Shawnee, Oklahoma, the granddaughter of a Southern Baptist minister. So I hope I've set the stage a bit. In about 45 minutes, we'll start collecting cards with questions from the audience. 
People watching online, you can submit your questions by going to onbeing.org slash ccp or enter your questions in our live blogging forum, um, or you can do it via Twitter using the hashtag CCP2012 and address it to at being tweets. Uh, people in the audience here can also tweet on this event. I will be doing so as well. I'm not multitasking. I'm doing as I'm told. Uh, and again, it's CCP2012, but please mute your phones. So with that, Krista Tippett. Um, I want to thank Bill and Laurie Bader and all the people at Brookings. It's just great to be here. This is the third of four Civil Conversations events, um, but we knew that one of them had to be inside the Beltway for this to have any credibility. Uh, and Bill has just been a great friend and partner in pulling this together. It's terrific to see all of you here. I also want to welcome people who are with us online, live streaming. Um, in 2012, four years after the economic downturn, the economy remains tumultuous territory that permeates the news and the way many of us think and worry on a very personal level about core human concerns from housing to aging to the education and future working lives of our children. Yet the budget debates that make the news are most often stalemates or outright political warfare, clashes followed by fragile compromise between seemingly irreconcilable values and concerns. The matter of deficit reduction is discussed in terms of numbers, of cuts and revenues, with little searching acknowledgement of the human and moral consequences that lie behind those numbers. And this breeds fatigue, confusion, and most destructively perhaps in a democracy, a disconnect and cynicism among the very citizens who must hold their elected officials accountable and indeed be part of the reversal of a culture of debt if that is to happen. Alice Rivlin and Pete Domenici are political bridge people. This is why I wanted to speak with them today. And I have to say, coming from Minnesota, this is a breed of Washington insider that much of the rest of the country right now can scarcely imagine existing. Uh, it's been said of Alice Rivlin that her dedication to serious, unglamorous budget issues is unrivaled. It's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> And a Chicago newspaper once wrote of Pete Domenici, when you cut Pete Domenici, he bleeds black ink. <laughs> um, and they have both been seen as forces of conscience on the roller coaster of Amer the American budget process of the last several decades. So the idea behind this event is that it would be helpful, even and especially for people who are not familiar with the ins and outs of budgets, just to hear Alice Rivlin and Pete Domenici speak together, um, to ask them how they think about what is at stake in this economic present in civic and human terms, to hear what their bipartisan work together has taught them, and to draw out the wisdom that they have for this moment in American life. So I'd like to begin with Alice Rivlin. Um, Alice, your father was a physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project. Your mother was active with the League of Women Voters, among other things. Um, I wonder if you could think about in your earliest life where you would trace the roots of, of the conscience and the moral imagination that has framed your life in public service. 
I think part of it comes from having been a teenager in World War II and in the college generation of uh, the post-war years, which was very idealistic. Uh, we wanted to uh, make sure that there wasn't another war. Uh, we were uh, interested in things like world government, world federalism. Uh, I wasn't actually terribly active in that, but it pervaded uh, a piece of my generation that uh, really wanted to uh, ensure world peace and prosperity and thought we could. Mm-hmm. I, I was really interested to read, this is beside the point, but it's so fascinating to me that when you applied to the School of Public Administration at Harvard when you were 22, they told you they didn't on principle not admit women, but they didn't admit women of marriageable age. <laughs> Times have changed. Times have changed. <laughs> that, that had to also be the beginnings of some tenacity, though. <laughs> I didn't hear what you said. That, times have changed. <laughs> and, and Senator Domenici, your father ran a grocery store. Your mother was originally an undocumented Italian immigrant. Um, and your sister Thelma once told an Albuquerque newspaper that growing up surrounded by four sisters uh, had prepared you well for prospering in a two-party system. <laughs> so I wonder, aside from that character-building experience... Um, Where do you trace the roots in your earliest life of the conscience and moral imagination behind your public service? Well, uh, you got it right. My mother and father were immigrants. My dad uh, came here when he was uh, 13 years old, and he didn't have to go to school because uh, the age for public school was 13. And as he grew up, he was happy that it was 13, because he didn't want to go to school. He wanted to work. Uh, I told him when I had the courage enough to, to say it, you're, you're wrong, Papa. Uh, it would have been good for you and good for us if you would have gone to school. And, of course, by then he was grown up and doing a wonderful job running a business. He solved the problem of his act, lack of English, which he never learned how to write. He solved that by hiring a bilingual secretary. But bilingual there was Italian and English. And uh, that secretary learned to do all of the work. I I think uh, what what caused me to be involved is a a simple thing that you probably wouldn't believe if I weren't right here telling you. But I learned very early and believed very young that America was a wonderful, wonderful place. I don't know if I thought about it outside of the, beyond what others did, but I can tell you, uh, when I speak of uh, American patriots, I actually think of my father and our family because we love this country so much. And, and that's why I worked so hard when I saw things going wrong And that's why I'm so committed now and work with Alice on trying to get a balanced budget. Because I literally, others may not have, but I ended up not too long ago literally believing that we were on the brink of destroying America. Now, when you believe that, you'll work like hell to try to fix it. And uh, essentially, uh, I don't know how these people that are listening to me feel 
our future is. But I feel if we don't fix the budget, our future is very gloomy, and we are apt to have a very, very different America than, than we have. Now, if that isn't enough to make you do something, then obviously you ought to move to another country. You ought to get out of here and say, you know, I don't like this place. Because if, if you like it that much, you've got to try to fix it. That's, that's what I've tried to do. You know, um, when I called you initially to talk about coming here today, you said, uh, I'd spoken with Alice first, and you said, anything Alice Rivlin tells me to do, I'll do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I can imagine that there have been times in the last 30 years since you've worked together that you might be shocked that you would have made that statement one day. No, I don't think so. Uh, look, uh, you, won't, you won't make that statement about somebody if you don't, if you don't understand and know that person. But you've definitely been if previously you do, you, you on other sides. You've been on other sides. Well, that's of, true. Of, but if you don't know that person well enough to, to make that statement and believe it mm-hmm. and say it, it will never hurt me, because then, then you don't know the, mm-hmm. the person. I, I think I know her, so I, I don't have any problem making that statement. She would not ask me to do something that was against my conscience and my ideal, ideology. If she knew it, she would not make me do that. Um, I mean, did you have a, like, a kind of working relationship and political relationship that uh, this seemed like an obvious thing for you to start working together on the debt reduction task force? Or How, how did that yes. happen? And you have to remember that uh, when uh, Pete and I first met, uh, I was the director of the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. He was a freshman senator on the Budget Committee, and I appeared frequently testifying before the Budget Committee, and I quickly figured out this man's really smart and he really cares about doing it right. Uh, So we had a mutual respect that goes back a long way. Now, we always knew that he was a Republican, I was a Democrat. And later, uh, much later, actually, uh, when uh, I became the uh, budget director in the first Clinton administration, and Pete was the chairman of the uh, budget committee in the Republican-dominated Senate, Uh, we were on opposite sides, clearly. Uh, And uh, we we disagreed uh, on uh, substantive matters, but we never lost our respect for each other. Uh, And I think that's the key to this. Uh, People can disagree on all sorts of things, uh, but if they listen to each other and have respect for each other, they can work things out. And we've kind of lost that uh, idea that you have to work things out and compromise and uh, come to a conclusion because gridlock, which we have now in the budget, is the worst possible thing, of especially in a, uh, with respect to a problem like the budget deficit, which gets worse if you do nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, gridlock is fatal for this problem right. because the course we're on now uh, is hurtling toward uh, disaster over time, and we have to do something. Nothing is not the answer. Um, so, so as Bill suggested in the beginning, you know, we we don't 
we don't want to, nor do we have the time to to do the do ins and outs of the budget plan. But so I want to just say, let's just let's lay out, establish that there's a fundamental truth to your budget proposals. I, I, lo- I love this phrase, the simplicity on the other side of complexity. I've heard it attributed to different people. I think I choose Oliver Wendell Holmes. But today, today when we talk about the budget, we're dealing with that, the simplicity on the other side of the complexity that debt can and must be stabilized, um, that both political parties have brought about the situation we're in now. And when you wrote this uh, together, this open letter to the American people, when you released the report on restoring America's future in 2010, you you said, we created this plan to show that it can be done. Right? Um, But then I guess guess the question that arises, and it's good to ask in a a place like this, is uh, still... Uh, given the political culture right now, um, could sitting politicians, I mean, you did have a very broad base, 19 people, former uh, elected officials and experts, but could sitting politicians reach that kind of agreement? I mean, what have you learned that tells you that they could? Let me start on that. I also served on the Simpson-Bowles Commission. And it was mostly sitting politicians. And contrary to the public view of it, we actually had very civil conversations behind closed doors. They had to be behind closed doors because there was an election going on, the election, uh, congressional election of 2010, uh, and many of the members of the group were running uh, for re-election. But uh, we came back every Wednesday to the Dirksen building and talked about the various aspects of the budget that needed to be solved and came together, now not everybody voted for it, but a majority of the group did, uh, around a bipartisan solution. And at the end of the process, I thought Senator Tom Coburn said it best, a very conservative Republican senator from Oklahoma. He said, there's a lot in this plan that I don't like, but I've figured something out. If we're going to solve this problem, Tom Coburn isn't going to get everything he wants. And that really summarized to me the idea of compromise. You've got to give up something uh, in order to solve the problem. And I'm sure that Senator Dick Durbin, who's a liberal Democrat from Illinois, had the same thought. He didn't express it exactly the same way. There was a lot in that he didn't like, but he he signed it Mm -hmm. too. So where's the breakdown what goes wrong between that possibility and then the reality that we see as it plays itself out? Well, I want to I suggest something first. Uh, I think that the, what, what must happen to address an issue of this magnitude and this importance is that uh, people in authority uh, have to know the problem. Then the problem. They have to understand the problem. If they know and understand the problem, then they know and understand that this is really something important. It's not just like last week's Big Ten football game. It is the country's future. And so if if you know that, you you are apt to sit down and address the issue as a person and say, I'm willing to sit with Alice, I'm willing to talk with Joe, and I'm willing to give because I know the problem. Now, what's happening to our country is 
more and more and more people know the problem. That's good. Uh, I'm not saying we'd have to have the whole population know the problem to get there. That's, that's an exorbitant request of democracy. You're asking too much of it, of democracy, for that. But uh, what's happened is we've let it go and fester, and the problem gets so complicated mm-hmm. that we are the victims of its complexity in terms of trying to carry it out. Uh, There are all kinds of members that want to do something, but they don't know where to go. They don't know. And I think citizens feel the same way. And I think citizens feel the same way. They they say, we've learned about it. What can I do to to save this country? I want to be on Pete and and Alice's side. I want to do something. So, I mean, what would your... What would your answer to someone be? Um, I mean, just how would you help someone think about where to start? Well, at this point, um, it's pretty obvious to me that we've got a little bit of time, but it's also pretty obvious to me that we don't know how much time we have. And for those who think we have 20 years, uh, they are truly willing to risk the future of a great country. For those who say it's got to be done next month, let's trodden off somewhere and get they're, they're kind of crazy too. Because the truth of the matter is, it's too big and too complicated to get it done that way. But uh, as a citizen, find out what is the real truth about this. And in, in my opinion, you should try to narrow it down to as few things as you can. And, you're, and it, this being the economic plan. Any, any plan, any effort should uh-huh. be the this, the it. And it, it should be as simple put into as simple a terms as you can. That's our problem and our job. Make it simple so that people can get it, can understand it. Once they un- we have it and it's simple, then we've got to work on the next step, and that's how do we get it implemented. And, of course, that's as complicated an issue as we've ever had. If we have time, we'll t- talk about it. How do we carry it out? There are some exciting actions taking place that might do it, uh, that Steve Bell, who knows some of you here, He's working very hard on and making some inroads. Alice, I think the essential thing for people to grasp is uh, that we're on an unsustainable track. The debt is rising faster than our economy can grow. Uh, And almost anybody can figure out that's a bad thing. And then the second thing is that the things that you would have to do to make that not true are all unpleasant. Uh, you you have only two choices. You have to raise revenues, not necessarily tax rates, but the uh, uh, amount of money collected, and you have to reduce the rate of growth of the big spending programs, which are ones that everybody likes. They are Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Those are the things that are driving the, the spending increase uh, in the future. They aren't the only things we might uh, adjust, but they are the basic uh, cause of the problem going forward. So that bipartisan groups uh, like ours and like Simpson Bowles and actually like any other group that you pull together uh, have come to the conclusion you have to do two painful things over time. 
uh, raise revenues and slow the growth of the entitlement programs. That's easy to demagogue. Uh, it's uh, right. easy to get out there if you're running for public office and say, no cuts to Medicare, uh, or uh, I will cut your taxes, not uh, not raise them. Uh, and that's that's irresponsible talk for anybody who wants to solve the problem. I think you make the point um, again and again that because of the difficulty and unpopularity of what has to happen, Bipartisan alliance is the only that because because I, every side will lose by making these unpopular decisions, and so essentially, what did you say once? You know, they have to hold hand, join join hands, and jump together. Well, let me let me add one thing in, in, in there that that's, that I think is true. Uh, I don't think what the public has to undertake to uh, help us get this done is as tough as it's being made. We're using words that scare people. Cuts to Medicare, uh, language by Democrats that says we're going to, the Republicans are going to do away with Medicare as we know it. And they say that very cocky and ready to leave and say, that's it, it's over with. Well, the truth of the matter is, we don't have to change Medicare an awful lot. It's just a little bit but it's a little bit over a long, sustained period of time. We have a job to make it simpler so people will understand that when we say restrain and reform the major entitlements like Social Security, Medicare, uh, and the programs now for veterans is beginning to get big enough to be in that category, you're not going to cancel the programs. In fact, within five, six, ten years, no one will know the difference. The programs will have that little been impacted, that small amount. Raising of revenue, we're talking about, uh, you know, we have hundreds of tax expenditures. That is, we give people things out of the tax code. Hundreds of them worth billions of dollars. We have to pick and choose which ones we want to either take out or narrow down an application. People aren't even going to know that the first five years. That can be implemented over a 10-year period. It's just that we've got to sit down with pieces of paper and convince the people not to be frightened and not to let this talk by those who don't want to do anything. Don't let them take hold. And, you know, I, I think also that that, that language of numbers and Revenues uh, in itself, it, it, they, these feel like abstractions to people who don't right. So it, that that language also, that way of talking about it, also creates um, anxiety, if not fear. That's right. Um, but let me reinforce Pete's point because right now in this political campaign. Uh, both sides are trying to scare people into thinking if you vote for this other guy, uh, uh, it's going to be a, a terrible time. And Medicare is a good example. Both sides are trying to scare seniors that uh, their Medicare will be destroyed. That's not even remotely possible. Uh, politicians care about older people because they vote. Uh, and uh, Medicare is an extremely popular program. We need to adjust it at the margin, but nobody's going to destroy it. 
So, yeah, so when, one thing that say, yeah, because sure. they vote, she said that. We're not, we're not talking. That, that language is not bad language. That's not in language that, uh, that we shouldn't use. The truth of the matter is that this is a democracy, and the largest affected group by, by budget work are the senior citizens now and soon to be. By far, they are the biggest. They're more powerful than General Motors, U.S. Steel, whoever you think are powerful. The, those who work for the seniors are more powerful. So we're not going to be able, if we were bad guys and wanted to, wanted to do Medicare in, we couldn't do it. The truth of the matter is we have to explain it better to seniors so they know this is fixing a program and that's part of a budget so you'll have Medicare forever. If you'd like to try America bankrupt and, and try to run Medicare, then go the other way. You'll have a, a bankrupt country trying to run a Medicare program. Would you like that? I don't think anyone would like that. So, um, you know, one of the, the, in terms of diagnosing what's happening in the political culture that creates these dynamics, one of, idea that keeps coming up in these civil conversations I've been having is that there's been a shift from opposing someone's position to opposing, casting aspersions on their motives. Okay. And, that, and that might not sound huge, but it, it's, it's precisely this. It's, it's going from, um, I hold this position on Medicare, they hold that one, to they want to destroy Medicare, right? Um, does, does that make, and, you know, and I wonder if when I heard the two of you talking earlier on about the importance of personal respect, how even when the two of you, for all these years, were on different sides of the issues, you, you had that respect for each other, which is, is nice language, but I don't, you know, I'm not sure how, how compelling it is or you know, how, how you can see that as politically powerful, but if you see that what happens if you don't have that respect, I mean, what's behind that is that you might question each other's positions, but you would never question the character or the motivation of the person on the other side. One example of what's happened in uh, Washington, and um, Pete knows this better than than I do, uh, back uh, a few years ago, members of Congress lived here, socialized with each other. Their uh, kids played on the same soccer team. Their wives knew each other or their husbands. Uh, and uh, it, uh, you, it's a lot harder to go out and say, this person is a bad person, as opposed to, I disagree with their position, uh, if you actually know each other and socialize together. And that has diminished greatly. Uh, in in the Congress. You're absolutely right. <clears throat> Let me uh, cite for everybody here an example in my own life. Uh, I had an opportunity to meet once a week with five U.S. senators, three from the Democratic Party, two from the Republican Party, and two, two non-members. We would meet once a week for lunch. Our purpose was religious. We were talking about something that was personal to us uh, about the Bible. And we would meet, eat, and did we ever get to know each other in terms of of friendship? We became fast friends through this. So much so that everything that I did in the Senate, I looked for a bipartisan helper, and I would always look for a bipartisan helper that was a friend. And if 
we could get together. It was instant contact, and we could, we could make beautiful music, I tell you. It was important that we know each other. And, and whatever can be done to tell the institutions of this country, make your institution more habitable for the, for the elected officials and their families so they get to be a little bit intimate so you're talking about Senator Nunn to your wife and you're, using, you're talking about Sam and she knows who Sam is. You wouldn't dare go to the floor of the Senate and say anything about him other than I don't agree with him. And he's probably, he could be right, but I'm, I'm just not on the same side and I'm going to try to convince you he's wrong, but he's a terrific guy. I mean, that's, that's the way we did it and that's the way we got things done. And she's right, that's disappearing. Because you're so busy, as soon as things slow up, you've got to get out of town, right? Mm-hmm. You don't go to a party, uh, a social event with your wife and, and a fellow senator. That's not happening anymore. Right. It was yeah. going away when I was in the Senate. That's four years ago. So I guess the question is, I mean, I always get a little bit nervous, because we're hearing this a lot, that, but it's, I, I get nervous that it's like, you know, the, fa- the nuclear family was such a great thing in the 50s, right? How we, how we get nostalgic about the way things work. So, I mean, to me, to me the question is, how, how can those human relationships be re- recreated? Probably not by everyone becoming Facebook friends, but some, some 21st century version. Um, I, and I... One thing I find encouraging is that I've gone out around the country with various groups that were pulling representative groups of citizens together in the same room. These are not people that are lifelong friends. They've been chosen at random from uh, from lists and invited to come and uh, spend a few hours working on a problem. In my case, it was the budget problem if I was involved with it. Uh, and actually... If people sit around a table and talk and they get to know each other and they say, where are you from and where are you from and what do you do? And uh, uh, the respect grows rather quickly uh, if you're actually talking to an individual person uh, as opposed to some abstract uh, idea. And the encouraging thing is that when you sit quite average citizens down uh, from different works of lo- walks of life and give them the facts, as Pete was saying earlier, help them understand here's the problem uh, and here are some options and things you might do, they come up with very sensible centrist solutions. It's not that hard. That's right. Uh, it's, it's really pretty simple arithmetic. And uh, people can do this. It, it isn't uh, beyond human capacity. Now, let me just add to what I said. Um, point number one, it would be good if, if members of the United States Senate could become friends. Now, that's over here on its own. And you don't mean Facebook friends. Right. No, I mean real friends. (laughs) Maybe they're good, too. I don't know. I'm not going to chastise anybody. But but what I'm talking about, there's there's one kind. But there's also friends that are born out of, in 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 the threshold of this problem. And what's necessary there is an agreement as to what the facts are. If we, we've got to go from the, from the citizen who is gibbering and jabbering about how bad these Congress people are to a chair for that person 
with somebody she would she or he would trust and try to get them to believe something, some part of this problem, maybe that we've got a problem. That would be a step for some. Right. And that, that it's got to be solved. That might be some. For, and that there are people trying to solve it who are not cheats and, and thieves and dumb bums. You know, I'm not that. I don't like anybody saying that about me either. I gave my life to 36 years to being a senator. I didn't get rich either. So I don't like any of that being said. But anyway, the point of it is uh, we've got to get a number of citizens to begin to understand and believe. And I think that's happening. I think more and more people are beginning to get this, that the serious problem of the future is the debt of our country, as expressed by Alice a while ago in simple language and, as I have described it, mumbling around up here, saying too much. I want to, um, we should, if you have cards, if you have questions, this is the time to complete those, and they will be collected. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, political bridge people. We're at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. I'm with Pete Domenici, former Republican, Sorry, former six-term Republican senator of New Mexico and veteran chairman of the Senate Budget Committee and economist Alice Rivlin. She was director of the White House Office of Management and Budget under President Clinton and was the first director of the Congressional Budget Office. Um, what does it feel like? I, I think it's happened to the two of you that you have been, because of these uh, bipartisan Activities you've been deemed to be traitors by people in your own parties. I mean, what's what's that experience like, and what has that taught you also about the hardness of this? I can certainly attest to that. Traitors may no traitors is not too strong a word. Uh, I have uh, Democratic colleagues uh, and uh, and friends, some of them right here at the Brookings Institution who think that uh, I am betraying the cause uh, by working with Republicans and working in a bipartisan uh, combination. And, of course, on the Simpson-Bowles Commission, uh, I got a lot of mail because that was a a, a public uh, thing. And most of my hate mail, and there was hate mail, uh, was from uh, the, the, the radical left. Uh, I am sure that uh, the Republicans uh, got uh, a, the same kind of mail from the radical right, but the radical right wasn't interested in me. It was the radical left that thought I was betraying the cause uh, and uh, called the commission the cat food commission and so forth. Uh, and uh, and I, I even got an email from a uh, very nice woman that I had been on a hiking trip who, uh, with uh, many years ago who said, what are you doing? doing on the cat food commission. <laughs> well, mine, I'm pretty lucky. Uh, I didn't get as much as one might think. Um, the issue that would be that there would be uh, anger and uh, in my, on mine would not be on Medicare. It would be on the new revenues that, that our budgets contemplate getting receiving over the next decade. Um, and strangely enough, the way we handled increased revenues in our proposal is very, very acceptable to a huge majority of the people. It's politicians 
who come running along finding something wrong with this approach because it, it is a really well-worked approach to the, to the uh, so-called loopholes. Citizens call them loopholes. It's using loopholes in such a way that they are, some are done away with, some are diminished, some are deflated, and it, it isn't as sensational uh, in terms of uh, uh, what, what people say of it. What are you going to say? They're cutting, they're increasing taxes, and you sit down and talk about how and who. It's pretty, it's pretty simple that over a decade, uh, this, is, this can be worked out without harming anybody, and that those who make a lot of money will pay a little more than their, than their current share. Uh, but the program will be a fair tax reform program. We have taxes that are so messed up. Tax reform has to be lauded. And our reform yields new revenue, so it's hard to be critical of it. I want to um, I want to zero in on the language of civility, which is a word that we're using for this project, but it's a word that also makes me uncomfortable. Um, you know, it's a little overused, and it has connotations of mildness and niceness. Uh, you know, can it be a powerful enough force to? to really make a difference in this kind of really historic difficulty we're in. So I wonder, the two of you, through your experiences, working on this, together on this, this uh, plan, but also in all of your decades, you know, when civility is a real, robust, effective thing, uh, even in hard political moments, what, what are the qualities it has? What, is, what does it do? How does it work? I think one quality is you have to listen to the other person and try to figure out what they're really saying. And uh, we've, uh, we seem to be losing that ability uh, to uh, listen. And you have to get them to explain why they think what they think. Uh, I teach at Georgetown University, and I taught a course this year that I invented last spring uh, called Decision Making in a Polarized Environment. And I decided after talking to my students uh, that they were mostly Democrats, not all, uh, and mostly liberals, and that it would be good if I got one of my really conservative friends, uh, my friend Allison Fraser from the uh, Heritage uh, Foundation, uh, to come. And uh, uh, I started by asking questions in your manner uh, about how she got to the positions that she holds and then let the class in on it. I think they came away with a very different uh, idea of how a real conservative mm. thinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I think one of the most powerful and revealing questions you can ask is, what do you mean when you say that? You know, even when somebody uses a, a, a vocabulary, a piece of vocabulary to ask, what do you mean by that? Senator Domenici, did, what, when you think about civility as a robust and powerful thing, what is it? What are its components? What, what is civility? Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me, um, um, if you just think of our, our democracy, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really an interesting phenomenon, democracy. And it requires certain things. And if, if, if you can't listen to those who disagree... Uh, without becoming yourself bombastic and irrational, um, 
then this system has a hard time succeeding. Now, we've succeeded for a couple of hundred years, but, you know, we are, we're up, we're, we want to succeed for a long time so we can be in the, in, in the textbooks with the real long-time long societies that lasted a couple thousand years. That won't happen if you don't respect the other person. If you end up hating, which I have to talk about if I'm asking to talk about civility, mm-hmm. if you end up being a hater and hating, you end up either taking a big chunk out of democracy or a small little piece out. In either way, you, you are really hurting this thing called democracy when, when you act the way some are now. I would urge that citizens who are frustrated about their government uh, not, be, not retain the position that the politicians are the bad guys and the crooks, and the, but rather to try to see what the problems are, see what the facts are. And to do that, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to open your ears a little bit and decide that you've got to listen. You two have been through many different chapters of, of American economic history. Um, I, I wonder if you think that there's something in the nature of this moment, this crisis, um, that is making the politics of resolving it harder. And what I think of when I hear you talk about hatred right, or not listening, there's, just, there's so much fear out there. And, and what budgets are getting at is, you know, it's touching on many of the aspects of that fear. And it, it brings out the worst in people. So, you know, you could in a very simple way say that these primitive dynamics in the halls of Congress are just reflecting human beings in a, in a situation where they're not at their best. I don't know. Uh, how do you think about that? How the, the particular nature of this economic downturn and the mess we're in now... Um, is shaping that the political crisis, which I think is how people feel, that there is a political crisis as well as an economic crisis. Well, I think they're right. Uh, there is a political crisis uh, in uh, that we have not been able to make progress solving some major problems like the budget, like climate change, like a bunch of others, uh, because we are so gridlocked and so polarized and we're the, the political parties are demonstrably more polarized. There, is, there are fewer centrists uh, in the Congress. But I think you're absolutely right that fear and playing upon that fear in order to get elected uh, is uh, a big part of the problem. And do you see it as more of, an, more of a dynamic than in previous times? Well, it depends what previous times you mean. We, yeah. I mean, we've had this is the worst uh, downturn in the economy, the financial crisis of '08 and the recession that that followed it. Uh, the worst we've had since the Great Depression, but nothing like as bad as the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a time of terrible fear and terrible hardship, uh, and uh, we're we're much better off now than uh, we were then. So it's a it's a little hard to understand why. Uh, People are so susceptible to the fear-mongering, but, but they are. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know how to explain it, excepting I, I would very much like to, uh, inc- to urge um, that people do everything they can to um, 
to, to not make this an insolvable problem. Hmm. You mean uh, even, just not even in our imaginations decide that, that, that it's they insolvable? Should, <laughs> the people should have confidence and hope and faith that we're going to get something solved and, and work towards that rather than the negative side. Mm-hmm. Uh, a democracy needs participation, so it needs some hate mongers. And I guess we wouldn't survive without them. But we, what we end up needing is confidence in the system and looking for the good part. And that, that's a hard thing for a politician to ask of mm-hmm. the public. I'm not running for anything, so I can say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I do think I myself have ended up from time to time thinking that this is such a terrible economic time that we won't solve it. And then I turn myself around and go to work on it and say, well, it's just tough. And that's because we're complicated and we're powerful. And so it's tough. But it's solvable. I'm getting more confident because more people are joining the cause of trying to solve it. And uh, if they just don't go off too far in their own directions and, and be patient for a little while here. Patience is not a great American virtue. Well, I know, but patience is not long-term either. In my case, I'm not asking them to have patience forever. Just patience through the election. Then right here in my heart, I'll tell you, the right person get elected. But, I don't need to tell you who that is, but in, in, in any event, that we, that we move on uh, from that to, to solutions, I, th- I think we'll all be better off. I agree with that. I think one thing that we seem to have forgotten is the nature of our Constitution. It requires compromise because we built into the Constitution our forefathers 200 and some years ago uh, a a lot of protections uh, against uh, majorities running amok. Uh, So we have all of these checks and balances and you can't get there, uh, you can't get to a solution on anything really important in our, under our Constitution unless you're willing to, uh, to compromise. And compromise has become sort of a dirty word. Right, a reviled uh, like, word. Like yeah. it was uh, a bad thing to compromise. Yeah. I think we have to understand compromise is a good thing, mm. and it requires people giving up things that they would otherwise support. Uh, but our Constitution requires compromise. It was set up that way. Uh, we could have had a different kind of constitution, a parliamentary system, mm-hmm. which requires less uh, compromise. But we don't have that, and we have to learn to live with the institutions that we have because they were set up for good reasons. I wrote down this Alan Simpson's definition of politics. Um, and, of course, he's another one of these bridge people now, and your, you, your budget plan is part of that other constellation. Mm-hmm. He wrote, in politics, there are no right answers only a continuing flow of compromises among groups, only a continuing flow of compromises among groups, resulting in a changing, cloudy, and ambiguous series of public decisions where appetites and ambition compete openly with knowledge and wisdom. And no, it's a quote from Alan. But I, you know, I think as I think what citizens are longing for more is more of that knowledge and wisdom. Peace, hanging out with the with the ambiguity and the compromise uh, and the ambition. Well, first of all, I I don't want to uh, 
leave the impression <clears throat> that we have to compromise so much that uh, we we don't have we, we never get we're never right we never get things in, done that we think should be done. Uh, obviously, uh, you, you, we're in a situation where it, it's absolutely patent, it's arithmetic, that you've got to do something to the entitlement programs where they cost less money over time or that you raise taxes enormously to pay for them. And, and you've got to decide, and there's where compromise has to occur. Uh, and, and when you look down at the tax reform and you see what you've got is this bundle of absolute humongous mix-up of things that it can't hardly be read and understood, you've got to get something changed. And to change it, you can't all agree, so somebody's going to compromise. So I don't think compromise is bad. I don't think you have compromise every day on everything. You, you become a nothing. Uh, but... Uh, I don't remember the rest of. No, no, said. that's. <laughs> we go to Alice now. Anyway, I'm finished. My I think um, I want to um, want to do another radio moment, and so um, I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on being conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, political bridge people. We're at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. I'm with Pete Domenici, former Republican senator of New Mexico, and Alice Rivlin, a veteran economist who served in numerous Democratic administrations. Together, they co-chaired the Bipartisan Policy Center's Debt Reduction Task Force. And now I'd like to welcome Bill Anthelis, uh, to the podium. He's going to moderate our question and answer session. He's the managing director and senior fellow in governance studies here at the Brookings Institution. Thanks, Krista. We've, we've gotten an overwhelming number of uh, questions, both from our audience here and uh, from uh, tweeting and, and the internet or the interwebs, as uh, some friends jokingly call it. Uh, what we've done is cluster a few of them into, uh, they're coming in, in, um, in clusters. So there are a number of questions around facts. So the facts are far from obvious or self-defining. How do you initially get hostile groups to agree on the facts? Um, How do you convince reporters in the media um, that it is part of their job to focus on facts? Um, They only want to report on conflict. Another one is civil discourse and exchange do not necessarily ensure factual accuracy. much civil discourse is ideologically based and often brutally counterfactual. What else is needed in addition to civility to produce rational, practical decisions? I think you do need a trusted source of facts. Uh, that's uh, at the beginning of the conversation. But in the budget world, actually, uh, there isn't a lot of dispute about facts. There is some. Uh, but if you sit down uh, with uh, uh, a bipartisan group of people to look at the budget, uh, they basically agree on the projections. I mean, I'm very proud of this because I started the Congressional Budget Office. But all of these discussions start uh, from uh, the uh, projections of the uh, Congressional Budget Office. Now, you can get some alternative projections, and you can say, well, if the economy grew faster, it would do better, and maybe they're lowballing the growth rate or whatever. Uh, but uh, the the facts are not very much uh, in, in dispute. 
They are in some other areas. I mean, like uh, like climate change, for instance, you get a big argument about the facts. Uh, but budget is fortunately uh, almost free of that problem uh, because any way you look at it, we're on an unsustainable trajectory. Yeah, I think I think that's right. <clears throat> but if you are a member of a group and, and or if you're being uh, judged by some as not having the facts uh, or trying to do something without the facts, um, you must solve that before you can go on. Mm-hmm. Because if you go on without that solved, you're just wasting your time. So you have to then figure out how, how do we get that one solved. And if you have to, you just break the group up into, into a smaller group that will encompass the various dissenting people and say we're not going to do anything for two days and you all go out and meet with these experts until you understand and, and, and agree and come back to us, and, or something like that. That's what we've done, and, and it's worked. Uh, we are lucky as a people right now in the midst of this problem, whether it's t- totally accurate or not, um, I, I'm not sure. It, it's probably as good as we're going to get because it's based on what Alice Rib, Dr. Rivlin built into the CBO. We do start with the things that everybody agrees upon or, or most people agree upon. That's a, that's a whopping help. Uh, when it comes to putting a budget, uh, putting something together that will solve the problem. If you have to solve CBO's problems, you will have months before you can ever start talking uh, just to, to open up discussion. I, mean, I think this for, for citizens is, is actually an important point to hear important. because um, <laughs> the idea of facts is, is very disputed now in, in, our, in media and political culture. Uh, beyond the Congressional Budget Office. And there is lots of uncertainty. I mean, uh, Congressional Budget Office projections can't be described as facts. They are projections, and they have certain assumptions behind them. Uh, And one of the big uncertainties uh, uh, Pete mentioned earlier, it's how long do we have to solve this problem? And there is genuine disagreement. Uh, There are uh, people, uh, reputable economists like Paul Krugman, who say we can go on borrowing for as long as we want because we're the biggest economy in the world and people will go on lending us money. So this is not an urgent problem. I'm not sure he's right, but you can't prove it. Uh, I think we might be in trouble a long time before Paul thinks we are, uh, and we better take out an insurance policy to make sure that we don't get into trouble. Uh, And by trouble, I mean rapidly rising interest rates and lack of confidence on the part of our investors, because once that happens, you're gone. You can't turn it around easily. Yeah, well, Paul Krugman basically... And does what a lot of people do, and he looks at the fact that uh, interest rates are very low, extremely low, lower than, ever, than we ever had them. How can there be such a crisis and, and you have such wonderful low interest rates? Uh, that's part of his argument, and that must be because they're never going to do anything to us for, for overborrowing. Well, the, the thing is that in this rather disjointed world when everybody's got budget problems, uh, money's being got to go somewhere because there's a lot of money in a bit world economy, and so it's going to America at low interest rates because because we're safe at this point. We're a safe harbor, 
so they send it here. If you want to base it on that, then go ahead. And then when it finally busts and this interest rate goes up, you will have borrowed so much the interest rates so Halid is alive, and then you won't be around to take the, to take a little bit of the sourness with the sweets, uh, whether your name's uh, whoever, whatever your economic background is, uh, you'll be gone along with everybody else. So I'd rather get it solved myself. There are a whole cluster of questions around um, uh, intergenerational equity. Uh, first, should we not ask seniors who can afford to pay for more Medicare but not cut uh, vouchers' benefits? Should we also ask those under 65 to contribute more to co cover Medicare? Another question, as a young professional, I see a gap growing larger and larger every year between my peers who care about politics and civic engagement and those who ignore it. Does it need to be self-starting or are, are government consequences like taxers or even um, as far as the draft, things that can help youth to become more engaged? Also, uh, as the number of younger voters increases and their political acumen is shaped amidst a polarized and volatile political landscape, how can current and seasoned politicians help create an environment where voters can truthfully engage with the issues? Jump in. Well, let me start on intergenerational equity. I think it's real. I think the danger uh, in not solving the uh, uh, debt problem, and by solving I mean not getting us back on a sustainable path where our debt is not growing faster than our uh, GDP, the danger is uh, that uh, uh, paying uh, the interest and paying uh, all of the uh, costs uh, is going to drive out investments in uh, things that we need to grow the economy uh, for the future. Uh, that's already happening at the state level. We're having uh, cutbacks in education and other things that uh, uh, we need to grow the economy. But the real point is uh, it's our children and our grandchildren uh, – and Pete and I have got grown grandchildren already, uh, are, who are, uh, so maybe we should talk about our great-grandchildren, uh, who are going to be endangered if we don't solve this problem. Uh, I'm having trouble remembering some of the questions, so I apologize. Just, yeah, uh, just the idea of intergenerational I, equity. I, I this, can do that yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, the rest of it, I if it's important, you can tell me what it is. It was a long list of questions. So, but. Uh, well, um, one of the things we did not say much about, that it's good that this question prompts me to think about it with you, is that uh, America has always uh, grown uh, sufficient to take care of generations and to also uh, take care of uh, 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 investing in the future. Uh, if we don't grow, uh, then I hate to keep repeating this, but... Our kind of system really goes haywire because the people are relying upon a certain sized pie that gets distributed uh, throughout the economy and to people. And if that isn't growing, then uh, obviously uh, you, you can't get pay raises. Uh, you can't save as much as you plan to save. Everything that's good gets whacked back. If, if you aren't growing, as, if this kind of if this kind of uh, free economy isn't growing, so um, the uh, 
seniors versus uh, the, the, those who are next versus the babies and little kids, there will have to be some generational problems that are significant. If we are not growing uh, and if these particular groups of people uh, are entitled to receive things from their government and there won't be enough there to give them. That will be the a big monster problem, and we're already feeling it. And some of you may, as, may feel like I do. You look around your community and other communities, and you see that we look old. We look old. We're short of things. The streets are broken. The pavement isn't there. Well, we're, we're, we weren't like that when we were growing and uh, spreading the money out right. Uh, so I, I'm... The question is well taken. You, you know, that gets at also the language of recovery, right? We talk a lot. I mean, we're in this middle of this campaign. I mean, I, I want to be blunt and say I feel like neither one of the candidates can be honest about or can speak in a searching way about recovery, maybe not meaning uh, getting back to some normal or, or growth as we've known it into the future. Um, I mean, I would like to ask the two of you honestly, you know, what do you think economic, what is the economic recovery we can aspire to? Oh, I'm not pessimistic about the U.S. economy and its recovery. Uh, We gave, we uh, had an unnecessary financial crash. We didn't have to do that to ourselves, uh, but we did. And what we know about financial crashes is they uh, give you recessions that are longer and harder to get out of. And this one was particularly bad because it involved housing. And housing, unlike stocks and other things, everybody uh, benefits from. Uh, and uh, so it's not very surprising that this recovery has been slow. But I don't see anything fundamentally wrong with the U.S. economy. Uh, we'll get back to. But do you uh, think that your great grandchildren will have the same kinds of ambitions, the same kind of idea about what they'll achieve in their working life um, that that their parents did? I think we can get back to a situation where. Uh, the standard of living is rising for almost everybody, and people can look forward to a better life than their parents had. Uh, uh, I, a, I really think that. I'm a little bit uh, more opti- pessimistic than she is, than Alice is. Um, I think we're, we, we, can, we can make it. We can get out of this mess we're in and start to grow. I'm not sure that we can uh, sustain what we need over the next decade to two decades to get ourselves back on our feet and growing where the standard of living that people the people should be getting is there without its superinflation. Um, but uh, clearly we're not going to get there unless and until our political leadership leads us to get this done. No, we haven't said anything about that yet today, and we're probably going to quit with this statement. But we have not had leadership uh, on the issue of uh, debt and the debt reduction. Uh, it's been around the edges of politicians, and it's been um, you know, setting up a commission, then not accepting it, those kinds of things. Those are not total focus on the problem by the leadership of the country. That's got to be done sooner or later. That you know that that old tree isn't going to wait too much longer. Another question. 
Well, we'll stick on that theme. Uh, lots of questions about politics. In a divided government, how to find a sensible center between Grover Norquist's no-tax pledge and those who say we can't touch Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, and then particularly to Senator Domenici, if you were still a sitting senator contemplating re-election, how differently would you carry out this effort? Yeah, you don't really want that. All. You don't want that from me. I can't. Give, I can't tell you that much. <laughs> I'm not that good at explaining that much to you. But I, uh, if I really uh, was running and things were as bad as they are, and Norquist was trying to get me to sign a pledge, I wouldn't sign it. I would. Uh, I would try very hard to prepare a campaign that was built on the premise. Uh, that uh, you want a pro- do you believe we got a problem? If you do, uh, do you believe we can solve it? And then, if you believe that, then I'm going to tell you how I think we can solve it. And you ought to vote for me, yes or no, based upon whether my solutions are fair and right. Uh, if if somebody's got better ones, you ought to elect them, uh, especially if they got better ones on how to fix the economy. I I, I do believe you come to. Th- Various times in the, in, the, in the life of a country like ours, when you have issues that just won't go away unless you help do something different. And, and this one stands out. It's going to get bad if we don't fix it and we know how. So I would be glad to try to tell the people that if they didn't believe it. I'd, I wouldn't be glad to quit, but I would be whatever they said I'd do. I know Pete well enough to know that's the kind of campaign he would run, but he would win uh, because there really is, I believe, a large fraction of the public uh, that uh, wants to hear the truth. And I do think that these pledges are fading. They were uh, last years and the year before's uh, uh, thing. Uh, there are more and more members of uh, Congress and especially in the Senate uh, that uh, really understand the problem and want to get the compromises. And uh, I've heard uh, a, a number of uh, members say, uh, I think we should take a pledge never to sign any pledges. <laughs> right. Let's have one more question. So from from the national to the local, um, from an online questioner, how do friends sit around the dinner table and have a fruitful exchange about economic issues without it being political, uh, without um, arguing what's the way in? Um, And then maybe a little less local, a little more political. Can the nation's governors effectively become engaged in addressing the federal fiscal crisis? And why should they? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you my, my view. I, uh, I believe that uh, we, we were rocking along as a nation uh, about to uh, discard uh, the fact that we had s- states and that this was a democracy that expected the states to try things and uh, that they were really the, the engines of change and the engines of growth. Uh, we were about to lose that. And I think it's coming back. I think it's being looked at by political leaders in the framework of the Constitution, and they're beginning to say uh, the states uh, ought to really be given the authority to try some hard things and see if they can do it. 
So my answer is the states are becoming, they've got a problem with money right now, but there are some states that are going to try new things and try new leadership, and I think that's good. And I think uh, if they can get out of the mess they've got themselves in on, on uh, over-pledging for pensions and things, uh, they'll be pretty good areas to do some research on how to, how to solve problems. Uh, and I don't remember the first part of the question, but that's the second part, and I'd say uh, that's important. I agree with that. Uh, and um, I think in general, uh, governors, but especially mayors, tend yeah. to be much, and, and Pete's been a mayor, uh, much less partisan because the problems are so immediate. And you know all the people who are involved. Uh, and you it's very obvious that you have to uh, make a compromise across party lines. And at the governor level, yes, there's a lot of partisanship. Uh, but in the end, you have to balance the budget. And uh, that is often, uh, often requires a, uh, a set of compromises that uh, uh, are very practical and sort of down to earth. And one of the problems in the, in, uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, system uh, is we don't have to balance the budget. Now, I'm not in favor of a constitutional amendment to make us balance the budget, but it is a downside uh, that uh, so many of these uh, decisions can be put off where they can't at the state level. So as we draw to a close, I, I want to just ask you a couple more questions uh, along a little more personal lines, um, personal and political. So... One of the people I've been talking to for this Civil Conversations Project is Frances Kissling, who's a longtime um, uh, abortion rights activist. But she's dedicated the last few years of her life to being in real relationship with her political opposites. And she's named a couple of questions that she feels um, must be asked at some point in real dialogue. And, and the questions are, uh, what do I find attractive in the position of the other and what troubles me in my own position? And, and I wonder if you, could t- if you could think about your work, perhaps your work specifically together on the debt reduction plan, you know, or, or in your political career. You know, I, I either speak to this in terms of a specific budget issue or just as a Democrat dealing with Republicans or a Republican dealing with Democrats. You know, what, um, have there been moments when, where you could consider what you have found attractive in the position of the other and where you could also bring to the table what troubled you uh, in your own position, and that being a fruitful, fruitful mm. reflection. Yes, I think so. Um, there, the, the problem I struggle with most as a Democrat, um, I think it's a very general problem. Um, most of us believe in personal responsibility. We believe it for ourselves. We believe it for our kids. Uh, we believe people should take charge of their lives. Uh, and yet we also believe in both personal and uh, political space uh, in uh, community responsibility uh, for people who aren't making it. 
And the really difficult thing is the trade-off at that uh, that margin. And I like to think of it in, in personal terms. Uh, when you're bringing up teenagers, uh, you have to think all the time, uh, do we let them get out there and make their own mistakes so they'll learn? Uh, or do we try to help them do the right <laughs> thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's never any very clear answer to that. You do some of both and hope for the best. Right. Uh, but uh, the idea that uh, help for uh, low-income people or help to go to college or that sort of thing uh, is going to make people dependent uh, seems to me a, a wrong idea. On the other hand, the idea that there are no limits to the amount that uh, we should help people uh, is also a wrong idea. And you have to, you have to get the compromise uh, I started to say right, but you have to get a compromise uh, that's workable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if what I'm going to tell you fits the question. I'm having difficulty with that. But um, what bothers me most about uh, the opposition side um, is uh, I'll take Bill Bill Clinton, uh, my good friend, uh, and he is. Um, If he were putting a budget together and presenting things to the public, uh, he would take a package of uh, programs called uh, education and three or four or five others and say, uh, we're going to cut the budget, but we're going to take care of the A, B, C, D, E. And act, and then he would assume that he had taken care of that problem. I mean, when we, we've done that. We've, we've solved the problem of, of the, the needy with food stamps, of this group of this, of this with this. And the truth of the matter is, I'll strike that. What, what I wonder is, when will we ever find out whether what he's talking about really does any good or not? And that the amount is uh, unrealistic or realistic. I ha- had his uh, economic advisor, a very bright man, come to my office a- after he had finished his term service and wanted to say goodbye. And thank you, Pete, and the same to him. And I I said what I'm telling you to him. I said, you know, uh, if the programs you had, you said, um, we'll take these on and we'll work on them and that'll take care of our poor population and move on to this. If if you only knew that that little bit of money you were talking about couldn't conceivably do that, solve that, you you wouldn't even say it. It's it's so, so stupid. And he said to me, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, $600 million, I'm just giving you this, couldn't take the problem, could not solve the problem of this many million people that you're talking about. It's a political statement. It's not a truly, I'm telling you, it's something that bothered me. And I've said it that way. I'm surely, I don't know whether I'm well, right what, or wrong. I'm, what's something that I'm Republicans that do that me. bothers you? What, what, something what? that Republicans do that bothers you? Oh, well, in my, my, in my party, uh, we have a, an awful lot of good people that run for office and that get elected. And, and I'm proud of that. Lots of good governors, great ones, in fact. Uh, I, I do... Uh, I do get bothered by their position on taxes uh, when they just say, sign up with the the gentleman that says they'll never have another new tax. Uh, I think that position is irresponsible, and it also doesn't permit 
us to get things done because it polarizes instead of centralizing. And that's, that's one of the worst that we've got. So finally, um, so Alice Rivlin, you've called economics the science of hard choices. And I wasn't the first to say that. You weren't that. the first. Okay. It's a good definition. Um, there's a sense in which, uh, you know, the language of budgets is like dropping bombs from 50,000 feet. It feels like that. Um, but you are people who are making those budgets, working on them. And you're doing that as policymakers and as people. So right now, um, one of, and this has been mentioned, one of the most controversial areas of all of these plans is what happens with Medicare and Medicaid. Long-term care is a huge issue in there. Both of you are 80 years old. Is that right? Are you 80 also? I'm 81. You're 81. Magnificently. Um, I'm 80. You're 80. (laughs) (laughs) He's just a kid. So I just want to, I wonder in two ways, how you... You know, how, how the, the human side of this for you comes into this. And is, is that, do you reckon with this on a human level, even as you're working with these numbers? No? You mean as a, on a personal level? No. Uh, no. Because uh, neither of us are in danger of being in desperate need or, yeah. uh, uh, or our families. Nor, and we also understand the problem well enough to know that nothing on the table at the moment uh, is going to endanger seniors uh, uh, in uh, a serious way, especially not in Medicare. Um, so I don't think that's really relevant. But let me let me say the personal skills make a difference, and I want to tell a story about Pete. We got into a controversy in our commission at one point, and we were co-chairing, and I was sitting there at the table thinking, this is in danger of falling apart. Uh, but then the politician with whom I was working uh, said, let's call a recess and have some coffee. I don't know actually what he did. <laughs> He got some of the members over in a corner. Uh, I suspect what he said is, we've got to get back uh, to making this work, and uh, what would it take to get you on board, or something like that. Uh, But in any case, so they came back, and the atmosphere was entirely different. That was the experience of the old chairman uh, 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 that coming uh, coming into play, and and you have to have some skills at bringing people together to make these kinds of. And things I think work. you're saying taking them out of the policy discussion, having the coffee, talking yeah. together as human beings, yeah. and coming back. It worked. Well, it worked because they were these were amicable people. They really wanted to do something for their country. Uh, and they just had to be told that it was it was fix it right now or we weren't going to get anything. And they had to be told that. Is that what you want? All of you, this is going to fall apart. If, if you want to give a little and want me to take back something, but you can't be what he and he and he is, or we're gone. So let, let's sit down here and have a cup of coffee and let's talk about do we want to do something or not. And we got an answer, yes, we want to do something. So you've you got to do it that way. That's, that's the first premise, that we want to do something. Now, that means you've got to change something because the way you are saying you want to go won't fit the definitions we require. I mean, we go outside the circle. 
So we got to get it back in, and we talked long enough to come back in. And we, we weren't on the tune, but we were closer, close enough to, uh, to argue amicably with the full group. We, that's how we got it done. So between you, you raised 13 children, and I don't know how many Most grandchildren and what, yeah. eight of his. <laughs> how, how do you talk to your grandchildren, great-grandchildren about this? Mm. What questions do they ask, and what do you have to say to them as they think about their economic future? Oh, I'm very pleased that I have grandchildren um, in young adults now who are very interested in these issues and uh, uh, are able to talk about them uh, uh, sensibly and constructively. Do they ask questions that surprise you? Do they bring a new perspective that yes. makes you think differently? What, how you yes, say? I think so. I think uh, young people today, a lot of young adults are very turned off about politics. Uh, they're much more tuned into uh, community action of various sorts. They volunteer, um, although that's not true of one of my grandsons. He's quite, uh, quite interested in the political system. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't have too much comment uh, for you all on this issue except to say that... Uh, uh, my children first they they have they they've been educated and do all kinds of things from neurologists to uh, I have one son who's a good lawyer from a great law school and instead of being a lawyer he, he was a lawyer for six months and he decided to uh, open a charter school of his own he defined it uh, he opened it. He got the judge to give him six kids instead of prison to give them to him. Uh, and he'd train them and give them back to society. And uh, he did that with his uh, credit card, from which he bought the pizzeria where he trained the kids. And some big ph- philanthropic organization came upon him and said, My God, we got a, we got a silver Easter egg. And uh, they said, Would you like to run our corporation? And... Uh, he took it. He took this spare corporation of theirs, and he, before he left teaching, he had opened uh, three uh, charter schools of significant size uh, that, he, that he managed. Uh, well, uh, I don't want you to think I was trying to brag. Uh, <laughs> you should. What do you say to your children? What wisdom do you have to impart to them about their economic future? From, you know, what are they interested to know from you? What can you tell them or learn from them? I, I don't know why. Uh, we're, we're not doing a job too well, I guess, but they don't seem to talk to me about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're way too busy. <laughs> if you'd see what they're doing, you'd, you'd say, well, you've got to keep it going so they can do, keep doing what they're doing. Mm. That's what your answer would be. Right. And that's the way I feel. I've got to keep this country going because... These kids and grandkids are doing such incredible things. I wouldn't want that to disappear, and there'd be nothing for them to do, right? So uh, that's how I feel about it. I, I don't want you to think there's not personal relationship. The great, but they are busy uh, in their in their own lives and doing their own things and getting educated. Some of them just seem to never never finish school. Alice, there's still another one working on a doctor's degree. I thought I thought it was over with, but it's still there. Do you have, want to say something? Oh, I would echo that. I mean, I think that uh, the uh, 
the point of everything that uh, Pete and I are working on is uh, a better a better country uh, for everybody's uh, uh, children and grandchildren. And uh, uh, I'm actually very heartened, not just by my own descendants, but by uh, the students that I teach and come in contact with as I go around to uh, universities. Uh, there are an awful lot of bright, dedicated young people in this country, and that, I think, is very encouraging. Okay. Well, thank you, Alice Rivlin, Pete Domenici. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.